When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Splash Weather Repel Premium Windshield Wash features a three-in-one formula that repels rain, sleet, snow, and bugs while leaving a streak-free shine. And its advanced beating technology keeps you seeing safely all year long. See safely on the road when you apply a little splash. Pick some up at Walmart today. Oh, we're in for a long one. A long weekend, that is. And you deserve to spend it on the couch with a glass of something good. Luckily, there's Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly, you can compare prices on the biggest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered quickly. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. You're digging the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with LD, Will the Thrill, and TJ2. <laughs> Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where you talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD. Along with me for the ride, as always, is Will the Thrill. Electric Blue. I hate you so much. And it's too deep. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. And TJ2, the deuce. What the hell? Did you just break that over someone's head? It was, um, I don't have a beer in a can for the proceedings tonight. That was a bottle cap. Oh. That's actually quite nice. What is tonight's? I, I am keeping the tradition of having a beer alive. I, I just uh, I didn't have a can to pop its you know, delightful effervescence into the microphone. So, got it. I am enjoying a Leinen Kugel's Canoe Paddler Kolsch tonight. Oh, that's a nice one. And I am having the peanut butter milk stout brought to you by Belching Beaver. <laughs> <laughs> what? It's a milk stout, guys. What's so funny? <laughs> I thought you were, I thought you went to go get a uh, an electric blue pilsner. Oh, I wish I did. Mm. Every time you see it through me and it's all over you. Electric blue. That smells so LB had never heard electric blue. <laughs> yeah, I fixed that this week and we'll continue. The people, need to, the pe- the people need to know, LD. Yeah. I, I failed you. Will failed you. Society has failed you. Somewhere along the line, there should have been an intervention or an after-school program or something. This is a cultural Hindenburg. So this is, this is what happens when you don't... This My life is what happens when you don't listen to Electric Blue. Look, there's not enough evidence to prove that. I'm just saying that somewhere along the line, someone let you down. Okay. Yes. Well, I think this week is actually the first week that I don't have a death to report. I don't think anybody died. <laughs> Yeah, I had actually done a little research just to 
you know, see if there was somebody you were going to bring up. And I was like, huh, I can't find anybody. I will say that this. That's, that's actually that, good. Now that we found those damn dogs, can we start talking about the dog walker? Yeah, it was an inch <laughs> from death, apparently. <laughs> Dude, yeah. I watched the ring cam video of his attack, and it was vicious. It's I mean, terrifying. But it's, all the headlines have been Lady Gaga's dogs kidnapped. And then the dog walker is in critical condition. Oh, and uh, oh, and some guy, and they uh, they shot some guy, but the dogs. Yeah. But we must talk. What about the dogs? It's like no, guys, there's you a two know, I love dogs. I am a dog person. I have two delightful dogs. It's very sad if someone is, has their dog lost or stolen or whatever. But uh, uh, a person got shot. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe oh, we could good. at least yeah. mention that in the same breath. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about the. Uh, someone today yeah yeah it's a good so idea. We, we, this is the third in our uh, heavy hitter series did four episodes on the great eddie van halen just did four on the great adam yow yes, and we're about to do somebody who it's going to be a struggle for ld who will be the presenter as uh, our british friends say to contain this person's career in four episodes yeah geez. Uh, um i don't i don't know where you start i don't know how you finish <laughs> It's it's just an unending, and I mean the layers to it. I mean because this person was not just a musical icon; he was a style and fashion icon. He was a cultural phenomenon, transcendent, um, transcendent yeah. in in every way. One of the most influential artists, period, ever of any genre that you can name, and had a career that spanned fifty some years. Unbelievable. Yeah. And he married a supermodel. <laughs> and and that's just one of the things that's interesting about him. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm gonna tell you where. I actually started in just a second. But what I will say is this. I read multiple books preparing for this this episode, these subsequent episodes. One book, and I won't mention the title of it just because I don't want to blow this person up, but literally one book was so Oedipal because literally all it was was about his relationship with his mother and all the people that he slept with. Now, <laughs> mind you, it took me about seven to eight hours to read this book. So if I just explain to you all the people that he slept with, that would be a three-hour episode in itself. So let's just say he Are we going to do a he slept with him episode? Because that would be awesome. <laughs> that would be, yeah. But yeah, it was, okay. So it's it's a lot of, lot of people that he slept with. So I am not going to highlight every single person he slept with. And as TJ said, one of them is a supermodel. Yeah. So, yeah. So there you go. And then, and then on Tuesday, May second, nineteen seventy-two, he laid naked with. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> on May third, nineteen seventy-two. Yeah. <laughs> and that's six different people. Those mm-hmm. two dates, six different people. Yeah. So where I'm actually going to start is the end. And the last time that we met for the the ending of Adam Yalk, we'll play the song almost at the top of the episode. Now, I'm not going to say that he set a precedent for that, but I'm actually going to do the same thing right now. Because on January 8th of 2016, it was David Bowie's 69th birthday. So my friend Drew came over to our apartment. Now, Will, you know Drew. Yes, very well. We call him Drew the Viking. It's very accurate because if you picture a sort of RPG fantasy Viking, that's Drew. He's about seven feet tall. Uh, what, 275 pounds? He's a big boy. Yeah, massive guy with the long hair. Just looks like he's couldn't be happier than if he was out and, and he does lots of pillaging. Uh, he, he might. He I, mean, I don't know if he does. I've never met Drew. Yeah. 
but he is a teddy bear. He's so sweet, such a nice guy. But he came over to my apartment for some reason. I can't even remember what it was, but we found ourselves at the computer and he said, this morning I woke up and there was a new video on YouTube. And I'm like, okay, what was it? And he was like, okay, sit down, shut up, listen to this. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, the, the, the giant Viking man is telling me what to do. And, and to put it this way, he's like on the road crew for like major bands, right? major bands, like Marilyn Manson's the only one that comes to mind right now, but he is, he's major, major crew for those, for these huge stars. So like security or music. No, actually lighting. Uh, I think? Lighting, yeah, lighting. I think really. Okay. Well, you said seven feet and how, and however much I was thinking like, well, that's, that, that's how you won't stand at the dressing room door, but. Well, that and you can probably reach areas no one else can reach. So yep. you've got that extra extension on the ladder. It's going to help you out. But I'm just saying when a guy that size tells you to watch something, you sit down, you shut up, and you watch it. Uh, I remember one time we were drinking in a bar, and uh, I had said a comment about the San Diego Chargers, of which Drew is a fan. And he just put down his beer, and he said, what was that? And I said, nothing. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. Yeah. I said, uh, yeah. said uh, Philip Rivers is God. I yeah. think that's what uh, I said. Marty Schottenheimer, great coach. Yep. <laughs> so I'm just going to prove to you that a story can start at the end, and I'm going to play Black Star.
something happened on the day he died. The spirit rose and meet us and stepped aside. Somebody else took his place and bravely cried. I'm a black soul. I'm a black soul. How many times does an angel fall? How many people lie instead of talking tall? He trod the sacred ground. He cried loud into the crowd.
Okay, so <laughs> I know that starting out an episode with a 10 minute song is usually not uh, what's the word? So you're telling suggested? me I could have played Fountains of Lameth and it would have been fine? No, because that's 12 minutes. Oh, sorry. <laughs> or the entire version of the Necromancer? <laughs> so the reason why I played that is because literally two days later, David left the earth. Yep. And we didn't have this show. And I actually remember vividly calling my brother mm -hmm. and crying. Yep. And... Uh, uh, I, I did. I did know already because there's a, obviously there's a three hour time difference between where I live and where you guys live. So I I, I, I distinctly remember I got up, cut the TV on, for some reason flipped to VH1 Classic, which doesn't even exist anymore. And, and they showed well, it's MTV Classic, and they still show a lot of '80s videos, like Ice House. I'm just going to mention that as often as I possibly can. Um, but they were showing um, like Let's Dance or something, and then. Showed uh, maybe maybe Black Star. They showed about three David Bowie videos in a row, and I was like, "Oh, they must be doing some kind of rock block thing." And then they go to a break, and there was a quote on the screen from the song um, "Starman," and it said David Bowie and had his year of birth, year of death. And uh, and I and it, I was just gobsmacked. Just not it just knocked me on the floor pretty much. It was just it was shocking because that yeah. that's somebody who you feel like is he's always been there and always will be. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, sort of. Yeah, yeah. And it's just, yeah, still, it's 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 hard to believe he's you know, been gone for five years. And that was one of the first shots of what turned into one of the most horrific years for losses in the history of music that I can think of. Mu music and acting. We lost Carrie Fisher and Debbie Reynolds within days of each other. And I was at my brother's house when we lost Carrie Fisher. And I also sat in the parking lot of the, what what is that mall that's in Spartanburg? It's just the mall. mall. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I sat in the mall parking lot and just openly wept. And mom called and me. She's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm in the parking lot of the mall crying because Gary Fisher is dead. And, and we had just and we had just seen the new Star Wars movie. Literally just yeah. seen it. But that was, you know, and then I think Alan Rickman died that year too. But and yeah. then, you know, music. The first right. shots were now, right? uh, well. I also said the first shots were Bowie and Glenn Frey, within about okay. a week of each other. And then you go to Prince and Merle Haggard and Maurice White and Leonard Cohen and George Michael, and it's just one. Yeah. And like you're holding your breath on New Year's Eve, like okay, let's just let's just get to 2017 and everything's going to be better. And then 2020 was like, hold my beer. Yeah, hold my I beer. I got this. Oh my God. So, so yeah, we have lost someone, but I'm hoping to, over the next four episodes, bring this man back to life. So with that, let's start the story of David Bowie. David Bowie was actually born David Robert Jones at his home in Brixton, which is south of London. On a bitter Wednesday morning, January the 8th, 1947. Now, it should be noted that it was also Elvis Presley's 12th birthday. Wow. Yeah, so they, they weren't that far apart. But it, you will see that Elvis Presley does have a big influence on David Bowie as he gets a little bit older. And I'm not, not to step on something I'm sure will come, he, Bowie specifically wrote a song he hoped Elvis Presley would record many, many, <laughs> many, many years later. Yeah, I get to that. So hold hold that thought. Mm -hmm. But this was a really good year for rock and roll because Elton John, Sir, Dr. Brian May, Dr. Brian, wow. Mark Bolin and David Essex were all born that year. 
Wow. So, <laughs> so yeah, it was a good year for rock and roll. He was born at home because national health care didn't actually exist. He was a boomer, so he was born that post World War surge that happened. And, and I actually, I actually don't think in the era we're talking about, which would be the early mid 1940s, I, I don't think people being think people being born at home was an uncommon thing at all then. Well, I also think in 1947, London was still picking up the pieces. I mean, they got just sure. yeah. destroyed during the Second World War. Yeah. Well, the thing is that there was a national health care system yet. This is 1947. And only a couple women were actually lucky enough to give birth in a hospital. So that meant like a midwife would come to, come your, house, to right? your house like shoo out the husband give him a pack of cigarettes go sit in the garden <laughs> and the midwife and the wife would you know go through the, the labors of you know the pains of labor and and have the baby there was no um a hospital involved and that meant that and then the wife, husband wandered back in and said oh, oh you don't have the children yet i think we should you, do you do you do you have me spotted dick ready <laughs> I think we should give it a warning at the start of this for not language or content, but for bad British accents. For horrible, because I'm just going to do it incessantly for the next four episodes. Like, like Terry Jones from Honey Python. So yes. to all of you out there in rock and roll heaven land, we, we are listeners in really, too. really sorry for my brother's sorry, behavior. Guys. Here's our preemptive apology. This is going to suck. <laughs> this should cover the next <laughs> my, four episodes. My, my brother is a drunken idiot. <laughs> Yeah, that's accurate. He's not nearly as funny as he thinks he is. <laughs> that's why I can edit the episodes. <laughs> Note to future self. Yeah, but, uh, you know, when it came to birth and stuff, it takes two. So here is some info about his parents. I'm tired. This isn't going well. Do, 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 do. I disagree. <laughs> I think it's going swimmingly. <laughs> so his mom was Margaret Mary Peggy Burns. She was a waitress and an usherette at a cinema, which I didn't know that they had waitresses at the cinema, but I guess they they did. In Royal Tunbridge Wells, and his father, Haywood Seton John Jones, was from Doncaster, Yorkshire, and worked as a promotional officer for a children's charity. And David's mom. And okay, I'm gonna I'm going to tell you guys this information because i feel like it's important but please remember we're not doctors especially my brother uh you you can tell although i play one in my shed (laughs) remember we're not doctors and i don't fully understand any kind of these mental issues but she was born into a family that had been touched by mental illness and she may have been a victim to some degree mark spitz one of david bowie's biographers noted that schizophrenia was kind of it kind of ran in his family wow so the behaviors associated with schizophrenia can recess from an outside view only to be triggered by some sort of calamity so for peggy and her siblings there were two such forces their mother margaret and the nazi bombing of england during world war ii Jeez. Yes. So according to one account, Margaret was a cruel woman who took her anger out on everyone. And Margaret's own daughter, Peggy's sister, Pat, said that her mother was a cold woman and there was not a lot of love around. Now, I will say this. In one biography that I read, like I said, it was very focused on his mother. And and the picture that they painted of David Bowie's mother 
was that she was extremely cold and standoffish. I, again, don't want to get in trouble with our listeners because, uh, you know, we got hate mail for the Chris Cornell episode because I said I didn't know why there was so much hate for Vicky. But the fact is that I don't know David Bowie's mom. I'm only going on what the biographer said. So they're... So blame them so, if you're yeah, unhappy. Yeah, yell at those people because they were the ones that told me this stuff. They didn't know they told me this stuff, but I paid 9 to $17 for them to tell me this stuff there. So two of Peggy's sisters, Nora and Vivian, had actually begun to exhibit signs of schizophrenia earlier in their lives. But the nightly shellings during the Blitz in 1940, coupled with the idea of Hitler occupying England, exacerbated the girls' problems. So Bowie actually worried about falling victim to schizophrenia one day. Now, it should be noted that while his mother might have been a cold woman, I don't ever really think she exhibited signs of schizophrenia. However his half-brother, Terry, would. Hmm. But we will get there. Terry, who I just mentioned, was actually born out of wedlock and due to the stigma associated with such birth, was handed off to his grandmother, Margaret, who was emotionally and physically abusive to the boy. Terry's story is not a very happy one. Uh, His mental instabilities were in his genes and they grew over time. And even when he was sent back to live with his mother at age nine with her new husband, And his half-brother, David, from that point on, the only person that seemed like gave any kind of affection to Terry would be David. So David is actually Peggy's third child and his father's second. So at the time of his birth, his parents were not married. So for once, I'm going to interrupt myself and say that we need to take a quick break for our sponsors and we will be right back. And we are back and we're going to jump back into David Bowie. Okay, so here's a fun story. Fun story? Nope, not fun even a story? Fun, fun story. Okay. Fun story. Fun story. Okay. So Dave, David's real father's name was, like I said, John. And he would he was a shoe manufacturer's son from Dorchester, which is about 170 miles north of London. He was born in 1912, making him 35 at the time of David's birth. He received a really good inheritance in his 20s. And he actually fell in love with a woman named Hilda Sullivan, who he married in December of 1933. And she could kind of sing. So he threw himself into the task of making her a star. So he like bought a bar, made her the headliner. Bought a bar? So he was kind of like Citizen Kane. You know, like the whole through line of him trying to make Mm -hmm. Citizen Kane, trying to make his wife a star. Well, that failed. That did not go well. But he remained married to her. So after that failed, September of 1934, John became a full-time employee of Dr. Bernardo, which was a London-based charity for orphans and vulnerable children. Really sounds like an odd children's show. Yeah, it was. It did, it did sound like that. So David's dad was made head of ER for this charity. Now, he was still married to Hilda, and then he had another child out of wedlock named Annette Jones, who Hilda agreed to adopt. And then when the couple went the, their separate ways, Hilda took Annette from the mom? Does this make any sense? I'm confused. <laughs> <clears throat> This is so bizarre. So John John falls in love with a woman named Hilda. Hilda, then he falls in love with another woman, has a baby with her. Hilda's like, okay, I'll, I'll adopt this baby, Annette. 
And then when they all go their separate ways, she takes Annette with her, okay? When you so far. Okay. Then John goes off to war in 1939, and he meets David's mother in Kent. So he's got Hilda, who he's still married to, a baby out of wedlock, uh, Annette, who's being adopted by Hilda, and then he finds Peggy, okay? Is this making sense? And Peggy. Does this make sense, T? Are you no. Sure does. <laughs> Do you need a tree or something? I think I need a diagram. Yeah. And then a flowchart of some kind. Yeah, that's a, that's a really complicated uh, lineage. Yeah, and and here's the thing. I wrote that as simple as I could. Well, there's there are some family things that are just difficult to put in simple layman's terms, where everyone doesn't either sound like a traveling circus performer or a pervert. <laughs> Dr. Bernardo. I mean, because if you, if you harken back to our Robert Johnson episode, his whole family situation was, woo! And it, was and it, sounds like David's, it sounds like David's is quite similar. Yeah. Yeah. But his parentage is, is concrete, right? We know who his parents were. Right. Yes. Right. We know okay. who his parents are. And then <laughs> and I loved it in the book I wrote uh, that I was reading that it said, and the arrangement got complicated when David was born. What? <laughs> was already complicated <laughs> right because everything was going so well right up until then it's crystal clear everything was in line and then bam yep. everything was good yeah so okay so <laughs> david's dad is still married to hilda the mother of An annette has moved out but they still have annette and then he meets peggy and falls in love with her and then finally i think finally after david was born hilda filed for divorce wow so john and peggy were married a couple weeks later at the brixton registrar's office on september 12 1947 and peggy's mom acted as a witness and david was nearly 9 months old Jeez. so i i know that some people are like, but are you going to talk about how he wasn't registered or there's weird stuff on his birth certificate? Nope, I'm not. Because <laughs> apparently if you dig just on the surface, you will figure out that he did have a real birth certificate. It was just amended to add a parent name, I think, or to change a date. Which is not unheard of. That can happen. Well, especially during wartime yeah. or like pre, like just post-war, it was kind of hard to get down to the registrar's office to to announce that you had a baby because you had to have, you, yeah, like I said, you had the baby at home. You have to go down to the registrar's office and declare your baby. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I just think that they, they had to amend an address or amend a date on his thing. And then because of that, they actually stamp over a date. But I have, I have an amended birth certificate. Mm -hmm. So, and mine was because I was adopted and it's just as simple as that. But if you look at it, you're like, how come a, you know, 41 year old woman has a, what, 18 year old, 19 year old birth certificate? <laughs> That's yeah. fine. That's because I was adopted and they amended it later on. So David was about three years old when his mom caught him putting makeup on for the first time and that early wow yeah but it wasn't even her makeup he had stolen it from the tenants upstairs and he had gotten lipstick eyeliner face powder he had smeared it all over his little face he's 12 no three. Oh my goodness yeah we didn't do a time jump. Yeah, wow. I was like, where, where do we go? Oh, we're, like, we're three. We're exactly where we need to be. Okay. Uh, yeah. So she was shocked and amused, and she told him under no uncertain terms, was he ever supposed to wear makeup? Now, if his father had told him that, he probably would have taken it to heart because he really 
even at that age, respected his father. But because it came from his mom, he just looked at her and said, but you do. And in the spirit of fairness, she agreed. But then hammered home the point that boys weren't really supposed to wear makeup. She's going to be so wrong later on. On numerous accounts. On very, very numerous accounts. David's first day at school was at Stockwell Infant School. It was recorded as the 12th of November, 1951, curiously, because he wouldn't turn five until January the 19th, but it appears no reason for the anomaly. You can choose to, and I think both me and you were affected kind of by this rule, T, Mm -hmm. that the school semester starts in September. So most likely he could have been held back and started the next year, but would have been one of the older kids in his class, or he could have gone ahead and been one of the younger ones. That's happened to my friend Joe, who was born in December. They held him back, so he was a little bit older. That that happened to me because I was born in November, lived in Louisiana, where LD was born, actually, uh, when I attended kindergarten. Then we moved back to South Carolina, and they said, yeah, we observed this uh, rule if you're born after August the something you get held back. And my parents were like, well, he's already been to kindergarten. Yeah, well, he's going to have to go again. Ah. But, he's already, but he's already been. Yeah, but he was born after August 15th, so tough crowd. So I actually went to kindergarten twice. Well-versed in kindergarten. Yes, I, I can take a nap and eat snacks with the best of them. Yep. <laughs> they don't do that anymore, apparently. I don't think so. And it was different by state here at that point because in Louisiana, it was by calendar year. So wait, and, in, and in South Carolina, there was a cutoff. August fifteenth, your was the cutoff. If you're born after that, you you have to you go the next year. Which is super weird, but maybe it was because I was in a. I graduated when I graduated high school when I was seventeen. Right, you were like, not subject to that rule for some reason because you didn't attend school in Louisiana because you were too young. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. I went to one year of school there. Then had to repeat it when I got up here, even though I was perfectly capable of coloring and taking a nap. (laughs) And that's as far as TJ ever got. Pretty Um, much. (laughs) So he actually ended up leaving that school after one year because his mom was unhappy. So it seemed like even at his young age of, you know, four or five years old, that not only was he ready for fame, but the limelight was looking for him. Mm-hmm. It's just one of those things where you know that you've got a kid that's going to be a star. And that's pretty evident from a story in a book by Wendy Lee. She actually did a book, I believe it was called just Straight Up Mercury. And it was about Freddie Mercury. And it was a great book. So she's, she's an excellent rock star biographer so far. So she's batting a thousand with me. Mm-hmm. But uh, somehow... David Bowie managed to slide out of his stroller and get away from his parents at an agricultural event that the Queen and Prince Philip were attending. So he managed to run into the Queen. We're talking about the Queen, like the Queen that's the Queen now. (laughs) And she looked down and she saw this little cute boy, blonde hair, big eyes, and she just said, oh, hello, little boy. (laughs) And it just so happened that at that exact moment, a local photographer managed to snap a picture of the two of them together. So apparently somewhere there is a picture of the queen that was newly coronated and David Bowie at age like four or five together in one photo. Now, this picture has apparently been lost to time. How was that one lost? Come on. What are you guys doing? I don't know. It's in one of the Yorkshire newspapers, but 
no one has been able to find it. Now, at risk of a spo oh, spoiler alert here, isn't there a, a repeat of that picture years later? I believe there okay. is. I mean, I mean, you would think. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Which was not lost to time. Yeah. Now, having a TV in the 1950s was a luxury that not a ton of people could afford, but it was because of David's father's job and his love of the entertainment industry that having a TV was pretty important to the family. And this became clear to anybody visiting that David commanded the TV programs. Like, the TV was his, whatever he was watching, everybody else watched. But the thing was that uh, apparently there was only one channel that the TV got, and that was the BBC. <laughs> and it started its programming at noon or like in the afternoon. And there was like two children's shows. <laughs> one of them was called The Flower Pot Men and it starred puppets Bill and Berm and their sidekick, their sidekick, Little Weed. And this was the highlight of his day. It's gotta be said that David Bowie was not an only child. We've actually talked about his siblings already, but unfortunately his parents kinda acted like he was. So even though Terry was living in the house, John would come home and recount his day to David and David alone. And Peggy, even though she was kind of cold, favored David over Terry. And I just feel so bad for Terry because knowing what we know now about mental health, that could not have helped him in any way. Is he like Harry Potter, like living under the stairs? I feel like that, yeah. yeah. Not because these British guys don't, we're not just going straight British. Yeah, no, I just, he's very neglected is my point. Yeah. I'm kind of cast aside. And it, yeah, and I don't know, because at this point, I don't think he was truly showing signs of schizophrenia, but even at that point, would they have known what it was? Probably not, no. Again, there's no health system. Who's going to tell him he's schizophrenic? Uh, yeah. yeah, and... And 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 then there was such a, it was so taboo to talk about then even, there was such a shroud put over that, it was just, they, they, you were, quote, crazy. Yeah. And they didn't, they didn't want to talk about it, they didn't want to treat you, they didn't know how to treat you, they... Just wanted to essentially. I mean, I'm, this is not an exaggeration. Almost literally, like hide you in the attic. That that's that's how people treated that. Then there was such a stigma attached to it. I mean, there still is, but in the 1940s, 50s, I can't imagine how bad it would have been. You know. So yeah, I, I, there was no treatment, and there was there weren't many willing ears to even listen to what people were dealing with then. And this is kind of a trend that Terry will sort of float in and out of the home. It was never like he was pushed away. Nothing that I read kind of suggested that his parents pushed him away. It was just that he kind of distanced himself when he needed to and came home when he needed to. But there wasn't a whole lot of love coming his way. And I think that once he was old enough to figure out what was going on, David was scared that he would become schizophrenic as well. David did an interview with Rolling Stone later in life, and the interviewer asked him what was his earliest memory, well, one of his earliest musical memories. David Bowie answered, there was a piece of religious music that always played on the radio on Sunday called Oh for the Wings of the Doves. I must have been about six. Not so far after that, I heard Inchworm by Danny Kane. <laughs> These are the two pieces of music that made an impression on me, and they both have the same weight of sadness about it. For some reason, I really empathize with that. So there you so go. Danny Kay. So Danny Kay and a religious song called Oh for the Wings of a Dove. Bowie's family actually moved to Bromley when he was six years old. His parents, especially his father, encouraged his musical side from the time that he was a toddler. His mom spoke often of their deceased grandfather, who was a bandmaster in the army and played the woodwind instruments. And we'll get to this a little bit later, but 
<laughs> do you guys know what day? Okay, you can't answer this because you know what the answer yeah, is. I'll this one out. But TJ, do you know what David Bowie's first instrument was? I do not. It was the saxophone. Interesting. Would <laughs> I would not have known that. Now, now saxophone does show up a bit later in some of his recordings, pretty prominently in a few songs that I can think of. But I, I, I didn't know David played it even. Oh yeah, and if you listen to Black Star. That's, That's really pushed by saxophone. Mm, modern love. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, modern love, young Americans. Oh, absolutely. Even at the very end of changes, there's a little. Mm-hmm. The the little outro is is yeah. Is that I wonder if is that David playing it? I'm guessing. We'll get to that. Oh wow, cool. We'll get to that. He was also one of the first kids to get a record player, but we'll talk about that a little bit later too. David's half sister Annette would also move into the house because she was training in a nurse as a nurse uh by june 1955 when david was eight they were actually living in oh god there was a proper way to say this plainstow grove and this place didn't have a bathroom oh my god so, <laughs> david was eight years old when bill haley and his comments put out the single rock around the clock and that set britain on fire thanks to this david had set his sights on having a very large record collection <laughs> so david unlike most kids in britain who would have to save up six shillings in order to buy a 45 rpm of their chosen hit david was actually in the privileged position of getting them for free or for very cheap as his father would bring home donations from dr bernardo's because he's still working oh, okay. as the pr so PR people would drop off records at this charity and then he could grab a couple and bring them home to David. So Terry moves back in with the family, but he didn't stay very long. He left in the summer of 1955 to commence his national service with the RAF, the Royal Air Force. Correct. Yeah. I'm surprised they took him if they thought there was something mentally. Yeah. You know what? I don't know yeah. if, I don't know if they tested at that point. They, they may not have. Yeah. That's a good point. Cause they were still like, we're still in a very tenuous point in history like yeah i mean here's the thing there were landmines and bombed out areas that wouldn't be cleaned for decades yeah. in britain like you could still step like you could still but there's active bombs and shrapnel and all kinds of crazy stuff that was like still in areas and in that time they were starting to mark stuff for demolition and tearing it down and building up those state houses. Well, that's the joke in Hot Fuzz with the, the mine, you know, that stems from that reality. Remember when he finds the mine? Yeah. And, yeah, that stems from that was actually happening. People would find bits of explosives and some of them are active. Some of them, some people unfortunately got very hurt. Well, there's in there one in South Carolina where South Carolina almost got nuked, Travis? Uh, yeah, down in uh, Florence County. World War II era, an atomic bomb was dropped on uh, accidentally. Yeah. <laughs> luckily, it was luckily it was disengaged. That is crazy. Or that would have been uninhabitable and not able for people to travel through it for God knows how long, decades. It would have been, I'm sure. Uh, yeah. But yeah, it wasn't actually. It was either dis. It was either. I want to say the warhead had been disengaged. Maybe the explosive or the detonator. Something was missing to where there there wasn't actually a threat of it exploding. But the but the A bomb was dropped on Florence, South Carolina. It didn't explode. You can actually go see the spot where it landed. By us, wasn't it? Isn't it an American bomb? Uh, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Whoopsie, whoopsie. Damn it! We tried to get rid of them. <laughs> South Carolina's strong, baby. <laughs> Woo! You can try to 
Drop the A-bomb on us. You can rain Cromora down on our heads. We will prevail. <laughs> As a quick aside, there was actually a show on the Discovery Channel, maybe, that came and interviewed one of my reporters about the Cromora, because that was a real thing. It used to rain Cromora in the town that LD and I grew up in. No exaggeration, Will. It would, it would at times, July, 95 degrees, look like it was snowing, because Cremora was raining down upon us. Terrifying. If you guys don't know what Cremora is, it's the powdered creamer that goes in your coffee. It's hilarious. That's and just... Terrifying. And there was a Borden's plant about a mile from our house. And <laughs> on occasion, they would actually blow Cremora out of the smokestacks. And it would go into the atmosphere. And, and it would rain down on us. And rain. Delightful. Yeah. <laughs> I come from a weird place. Uh, okay, so his brother left in 1955 to like serve as his national service, and David enrolled in the Burt Ash Junior School, where he struck up two of the most important lifelong friendships that he would have. Jeff McCormick, uh, who lived right around the corner from David, and he would be in the St. Mary Church's choir with David, and he would eventually do backing vocals for Bowie while on tour and a couple of different courtings but he would remain his friend pretty much for life. And the other was George Underwood. And we'll get to George because he plays aesthetically one of the most important role in David's life. Now, in the choir, his voice was considered adequate and he demonstrated above average abilities playing the recorder. Hey. Which both you and I failed at miserably. Yeah, I mean, I want to I hear a good recorder player. It's kind of like the joke about someone playing the bagpipes. How do you know if they're good? I mean, we, no, but me and Travis, we, me and Travis have no musical abilities whatsoever. And the recorder is already a crappy yeah, instrument. Yeah. Which I don't know, if they, do they still make kids play Probably, the recorder? Yeah, I bet they do. I haven't seen or heard a recorder in a really long time, but I'm it's imagining so. And it, it's kind of seen as like the gateway drug to playing more sophisticated woodwind instruments it's kind of like your bb gun before you get a 22 sort of (laughs) but the thing is is that i had somebody actually tell me who was a a very accomplished musician that they're hard to play i'm sure they are and to play well that that, that you think of them as being that's the joke it's the most simplistic thing it's the well i couldn't even play a recorder and he was like yeah those things are actually a little harder to play than people think they are they're not easy so uh also fun fact fun fact fun fact david bowie was also left-handed now Travis, do you remember what teachers would do knowing that we were left-handed? I'm not actually left-handed. I'm right-handed, but I write with a hook. So if you ever watch the way that I write, yes, I I watch with my hand. So the, you know, left-handers, when they write, they get ink or lead on their ring finger because it it drags behind as they write. I get that and I'm right-handed because I actually reach around like you were just doing with my hand hooked as I write which is indicative of the fact that you're left brained or right brained excuse me right brained much like left-handed people are you are left-handed and you were made to write right-handed they would beat me yes they they they, it was considered uh undesirable to be left-handed so LD was made by kindergarten first grade teachers I think Mm -hmm. to write with a right hand and if I didn't, they would literally take a ruler and smack me. And I still have scars on my, my hands. And and part of the reason that my handwriting is so horrifically awful is because of the way I hold a pen or pencil. Interesting. Why do you do that? 
I, I have no idea. I've always done it, and and no teacher they couldn't be they couldn't even beat it out of me with a rule. <laughs> so at the age of nine, his dancing during the newly introduced music and movement classes was strikingly imaginative. <laughs> I can't. That is such a great commentary. Teachers would call his interpretations vividly artistic and his poise astonishing for a child. That same year, his interest in music was further stimulated when his brother brought home a collection of American 45s, artists that included the Teenagers, the Platters, Fats Domino, Elvis Presley, and Little Richard. Okay, so Little Richard, I know we all know who Little Richard is, but you got to hold on to that idea because mm -hmm. Little Richard is going to play a major part in Bowie's life when it comes to his his style of music, his style of dress, because the first time he heard Little Richard's song, Tutti Fruity, Bowie said that he heard God. The That's first time he, Yeah, the first time he heard Tutti Fruity, heard God. Bowie was eight-ish or nine-ish, and he and George, of course, were best friends. They were always together. Their first conversation was about skiffle. Now, do you guys know what skiffling is? Yes. I do not. Okay. It, skiffling was the rage at this time, and it's a revival thing at this point. So, T, why don't you tell Mr. Hickey what skiffle is? Skiffle is, if I'm not mistaken, a form of music. Yes. It's, um, there's actually a video, I think you can probably find it on YouTube, of about an eight-year-old Jimmy Page on a British TV show playing a song called Mama Don't Allow No Skiffle Playing Around Here. It's very reminiscent um, to my kind of untrained ear of like early shuffle sort of rockabilly stuff. Yeah, it was almost on the verge of punk. What, what set Skiffle apart from everything is literally it was homemade. Right. So it was like getting washboards and tea chess bases. Hmm. It was all these like handmade instruments. I mean, we joke about it, but you kind of played skiffle at your wedding with Ashley T. It's a washboard, yeah. Yeah. On the, wish, with, on the washboard with the, the thimbles, yeah. Yeah, so they heard Lonnie's skiffle group and Lead Belly's Rock Island on Radio Luxembourg, and they thought they could do that. Now, here's a fun fact. Fun fact! Fun fact! Rock Island Line was the first recording to achieve gold status in the UK, selling more than a million copies worldwide, and it started a craze that became a national obsession. At some point, there was a reckoning that there were between 30 and 50,000 skiffle groups oh, across the country. Oh, yeah, wow. Because, well, anybody could pick up literally anything and make music with it. <laughs> That's what skiffling was. It was that ability to kind of fluidly move in and out of music. Like you take, you know, this and... Stomp-esque, yeah. You know, you can make music with it using whatever you had at hand. So thousands of these bands blew up. So at the same time that this is going on, there was a little 17-year-old guy named John, and he started to perform with his Liverpool skiffle group, the Quarrymen. There you go. Do we know... Mm -hmm. Do we know about Mr. John Lennon? We do. Yeah. For those who don't know, John Lennon would go on to uh, be in a little band called Beatles. Called the Plastic Ono Band. <laughs> <laughs> David's first public performance was the following summer in 1958 on the Isle of Wight when David bought an old tea chest bass that his dad helped him make from a broom handle and a ukulele from his friends. And they did their first performance around a campfire. 
playing Davy Crockett. Interesting choice. Yeah. So David was always more enthusiastic than others. I think that's a really nice way of saying that he was hyperactive, <laughs> which we know nothing about growing up. Right, T? Yep. Not at all. Moving on. Uh, he was ex- When he was excited about something, from American football to baseball to Jack Kerouac, whatever happened to be what got his attention, he would almost force you, if you were his friend, to be a part of it. So if he loves Skiffle, by God, you are Skiffling with him. <laughs> I think that's the proper verb. Skiffolding? Skiffolding. Or listening to American football on the radio. He would get obsessed with things for a really short amount of time, and then that would wear off, and something else would come in, and he would get super obsessed with that. And he was considered a faddist. So, I mean, but later on in life, you're going to see that that is going to do him well. Yeah, I can... I can already see where it's having that ability to find something that interests him, do it for a little bit that fades. And then he goes on. And I will say, spoiler alert, this is what happens with Ziggy, Mm. which we will get to in the next episode. But this is how smart he is. He and his friends had a made up language that they would use to talk to each other. And it was called reverse talk or back slang. You would take a word, split it in half, swap it around and take the last letter and emphasize it. Whoa. Are we following this? Sounds complicated. <laughs> so, Sound of, yeah. so the word glasses is S-lags. Paper is RPAP and so on. So no one ever had a clue what they were talking about. And that's how David and George would talk to each other. Hmm. Like think about how backwards your brain has to be for that to work. Especially on the fly. Yeah, yeah. like I, I barely remember Pig Latin, but that, that's how they would do it. So they took their 11 plus exams in January of 1958, and both the boys were destined for their new school, which was Bromley Technical School on Oakley Road near Kingston Market, which opened that September. They were super happy because this is the first time that they had actually been to school together because they had met in, George was not a part of his school. George was a part of the Wolf Pack, which is kind of like our Cub Scouts. And this was a brand new school. So uh, he was super excited because this place was brand new and the big focus of the school was this staircase so him and his friends would sit on the staircase because it had these amazing acoustics and they would play the guitar so his half-brother terry back in and terry actually turns him on to modern jazz and bowie's enthusiasm for players like john coltrane led his mother to give him a plastic saxophone (laughs) for christmas in 1959 very nice now, 13-year-old boys are right on the cusp of actually caring what they look like. So at mm-hmm. the time that they were growing up, the kids were all about how the shoe was pointed, how the cut of the slack was, the tent of the lock. So they would like cut their hair, dye their hair, make sure their pants were perfect, make sure the shoes were pointed. I, I still don't understand 50s, 60s fashion uh, for males. Women, I completely understand because I actually had to wear them for an extensive period of time. But men's are just confusing because it's like wool and that's it. I think the 50s, the 50s were more traditional. Then we got in the 60s, it, it sort of veered away from that, especially in, in the UK. Yeah. So according to George, that they had to keep they had to keep their appearance normal during school. But once they were off duty, they became what he called a right couple of geezers. If anybody knows what that means, please tell me. Well, geezer is a slang term. It's a slang term for just a guy, a geezer. 
like an older guy. <laughs> but but no, there's another meaning of it, which is an odd, eccentric, or unreasonable person. Oh. So there you have it. The thing about David Bowie at this age was that he didn't actually like to go out and party. Like he, it, it would take his friends some serious begging to get him to come out because most of the time he would just be tucked away in his room with his nose stuck in a book. So that year turned out to be significant for three reasons. Firstly, in July, after the end of term, the Queen's Theater in London's West End to see what he would later say would be a groundbreaking show. Stop the World, I Want to Get Off, starring Anthony Newley, the stage and screen actor and songwriter who co-wrote Feeling Good, which was a massive hit for something we've actually talked about before. Oh, yeah. Nina Simone. Right. David would look back on that performance as a personal turning point and inspiration. Michael Vernon, the producer of Bowie's first album, would describe David as a young Anthony Newley. So having that be like one of the plays that like changed his life would totally make sense. Secondly, his best friend was offered the role of the front man in the lineup for the Conrads. Now, the Conrads were a local band when their original singer dropped out. For David, this was a kick in the face because he wanted to be the lead singer. But don't worry, he gets his due. Uh, thirdly, perhaps most crucial, David discovered the saxophone proper. He would later claim that he was very inspired by Little Richard's backing band and then like a string of obscure American musicians and beat poets and authors as major inspirations, uh, Kerouac being one of them. Basically, he begged, begged for a saxophone. He wanted a baritone saxophone. I guess because it sounds sexier, deeper, you know, it's got like a good resonance to it. But when he woke up on Christmas Day, he saw a beautiful, cool acrylic Grafton sax with green and gold keys that were under the tree that that Christmas morning. He was bummed out, though, because it was an alto sax. Oh, well, that's, that's what uh, Kenny G plays, isn't it? One of, yeah, he plays soprano sax, too. Soprano sax, too, yeah. yeah. But I mean, uh, alto is very common in jazz music, and so is tenor, which would be Coltrane. Well, also, it isn't you hold it like to the side because it's so large. Yeah, right? and, and, a, and a, a barry sax is, is massive. The thing is huge. An alto is a little more manageable physically. Well, that's that's the front yeah. hold, right? Yeah. yeah. Which makes me wonder if that saxophone player in The Lost Boys would cite David Bowie as one of his influences. Oh, good lord. So in that same interview that we talked about before, a Rolling Stone article asked him, uh, your first instrument was a saxophone. Why the sax? And he said, my brother was a huge fan. He played me way out stuff like Eric Dolphy and Coltrane. I wanted a baritone, but I got an alto sax. (laughs) Did you take lessons? Ronnie Ross, who is featured in Downbeat, is one of the greatest baritone players, lived locally. So he (laughs) looked in the telephone book and rung him up. So seriously, one of the best baritone sax players of all time lived in his area and he just called him and was like, hey, can you give me lessons? I like the introduction. I'm David and I'm 12. Yeah, Yeah, he literally says, he rings him up and he says, hi, I'm David. I'm David Jones and I'm 12 and I want to play the saxophone. Can you give me lessons? And he sounded like Keith Richards and he said no. So he hung up. Called back and begged him and said, if you can get yourself over here Saturday morning, I'll have a look at you. Well, this isn't this kind of a throwback to our John Bonham episode where he walked up to the house uh-huh. of, some, of some orchestral drummer and knocked on the door and said, you know, hello, I'm John Bonham. I'm I'm a drummer and I'm potty about cars. 
yeah, very similar. Yes, yeah, so I've just but did, had never met the guy. The dude didn't know him. <laughs> had had no clue who he was. It's just like, hey, yeah, I, I want to be a drummer and I like cars. I hear you do. Let's uh, let's hang, huh? That's hilarious. Well, so so he he wanders over to this guy's house. So he finally agrees. He pays two pounds for each lesson, and he takes lessons for three months. And Ross was really impressed by his diligence, persistence, and talent. David returned the compliment by calling him cool. Now, I will say he did way more than that because David thought he was so cool that much later on, David was producing Lou Reed. And they decided that they needed a sax solo on the end of Walk on the Wild Side. So he gets the agent to book Ronnie Ross. So he pulled out that solo in one take. You guys oh, know, yeah. yeah, pulls that out at the end of Walk on the Wild Side, one take. And afterwards, David leaves the booth and says, thanks, Ron. Should I come over to your house on Saturday morning? And he looks at him for a second. And he goes, I don't fucking believe it. You're Ziggy Stardust. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> that is such a great story. It's just like, but I love that because he, he pays him back, you yeah. know? So what made David pick the saxophone over the guitar or the piano? Well, according to John Altman, it's one of the easiest instruments to play. And he should know because he's played with everyone from Little Richard to Jimi Hendrix to Bob Marley, Eric Clapton, Tina Turner, Rod Stewart, and a little band called Fleetwood Mac. A few names we know. Yeah. You only need to have a little bit of, of teaching before you become kind of competent on it. And it, it's, it's a pretty easy instrument to pick up. And for something that you just blow into, it's actually one of the most varied woodwinds he adds. Think of the great Stan Getz, totally sounds different than Men Webster, who's not the same as John Coltrane, who's unlike Coleman, Hawkins, who can't be compared to Michael Brecker. There's tenor, there's alto, there's baritone. You can run the whole gamut of pitches from really, really high to really low. And there are are a couple other sexy advantages to being a saxophone player. Uh, because it's David Bowie, of course, he'd pick the one that's like sexy. Because if you you don't want to get what's called brass lip, which is if you play the trombone or the tuba or the trumpet, you get like a, a non-woodwind instrument. Yeah, yeah, not like, yeah, you get like a, a hump on your lip. Yeah, because you're pushing it against the, yeah. the mouth. And yeah. it's, not, it's not really that sexy, but, you know, you put something in your mouth and you blow like the saxophone. You don't get that on your lips, so... Yeah. Is this a snake eating its tail, though? Is it like, is it sexy because it's David Bowie? Or did David Bowie do it because it's sexy? Will we ever know? I don't want to know. At this point, he starts dating a young woman named Dana Gillespie, who will later become a world-renowned blues singer. So uh, this is kind of the start of his David Bowie-ism. We're not yet to codpiece David Bowie. Because I realize that we've been talking for a very long time and I have not brought up David Bowie in a cod piece yet. Yeah. So at this point, again, his brother would come home for a brief amount of time. But Terry, now 21, is really starting to show the signs of schizophrenia. But in spite of that, he actually manages to land a job. It's a clerical job in London, which is really good. It appears to be a myth that the thin white duke had heterochromia meaning that his eyes were two completely different colors. Mm-hmm. What David Bowie actually suffered from is called, I'm going to screw this up, anisocroia. 
Is that correct? Anasocria? Anas Anasocria. Okay. If you're a medical person and you're cringing right now, I'm really sorry. It, namely that one pupil is bigger than the other. And it means that the iris, the colored bit, can't react to light the same way as your other eye. So that area appears to be darker. So <laughs> when he was young, David's friend, George, they, they had been friends for like six years at this point, and they were both interested in the same girl. So the two of them had a disagreement. <laughs> and in January of 1962, the Fisher Star, known as plain old David Jones at this point, was at school in Bromley when he got into a fight with this friend, George. So what happened was he had a 15th birthday party. One of the reasons why I had a party was because both of us fancied this girl named Carol. It was a ploy to talk to her. Before yeah. she left, I asked if I could meet her at the youth club Wednesday at 7 p.m. Just before I was about to go meet her, David phoned me and said that she didn't want to meet me. She wanted to go out with him, which was a lie. So I went down to the youth club later and her friends said that she had been waiting a whole hour for me and then left in a huff. So furious, Underwood stood up to Bowie and punched him right in the eye. I wanted to give him a blackout because of the girl. I didn't think it was going to be a lasting mark. <laughs> the way Bowie retold the story, he said it wasn't necessarily a hard punch, but it suspected that Underwood's fingernail had scratched Bowie's eye and basically paralyzed the iris. He was immediately taken to the hospital and eventually had two different eye surgeries. Wow. Uh, that nasty injury resulted in four months of hospital treatments, after which the doctor came to the conclusion that David was not going to be able to see completely clearly again. So he has poor depth perception. And basically the way that David explains it is if you're driving a car, the car doesn't get closer. It gets bigger, if that makes any sense. Sounds very dangerous if you're driving, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. So despite everything, Bowie and Underwood stayed friends for the rest of David's life. Huh. Later on, Bowie actually thanked Underwood for his eye condition, saying that it gave him a kind of mystique, which I fully agree. Yeah, and I thought this whole time they were different colors. Yeah, I really did. It's actually his iris is paralyzed in the dilated position. That's crazy. I mean, I would have preferred to not have been in the hospital for four months, but yeah, thanks, George. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, dick. Now I'm David Bowie. <laughs> yeah, now he's David Bowie with a really cool eye thing. Yeah. I mean, how many how many rock stars do you know have like a let's be let's be adults here. Ah, oh, nuts. Something physical that sets them apart. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry, guys. I tried. But seriously, like, can you name someone who... Joe I mean, the, the, the honest example, which also came out of some trauma. Jim Morrison. Shut up, Travis. Jimi Hendrix. The one that I can think of that came out of trauma was Tony Iommi, who got the tops of his fingers sliced off. And oh, yeah? Car player. Yeah, that, that's one that comes to mind. Yeah. Sure. And then the guy you did the episode on from Jen Blossoms. Yeah, Doug Hopkins. Yeah, well, he had, he had a, a cleft iris. It was... Split into two pieces, but that was from birth. So, that but was it was some, but it was something distinctive physically. Oh, absolutely, yeah, sure. Absolutely. In 1962, David became a part of his first band, and he was 15 years old at this time. He played, playing guitar-based rock and roll at the local youth gatherings and weddings. The Conrads had a varying lineup between four and eight members, Underwood being part of them. So Bowie actually joined the Conrads with Underwood. But also in 1962, 
The Man Hugs Blues Brothers were formed in London by the keyboard player Manfred Mann and the vibes player Mike Hugs, who later changed their names to the behest of their label's producer, John Burgess, to Manfred Mann's Earth Band. There it is, ladies and gentlemen. Elaborately delivered, the federally mandated Manfred Mann's Earth Band reference of the podcast. Very nice. Very nice. Okay, so in 1962, David actually became the saxophonist for the Conrads, calling himself a Dave J. Very creative. <laughs> and his first public appearance took place at his school's summer show. He was nervous, but the show went off without a hitch, and the band performed covers of Little Richard's Lucille, Sam Cooke's Twisting the Night Away, and so much more. And although David was the youngest member of the band, his creativity was already apparent because he was constantly suggesting new songs and new outfits and pushed for the band to let him write songs for them. After leaving school in July of 1963 on August 29th, David made his first professional studio recording singing backup on the Conrad's song, I Never Dreamed. Okay, so I don't know if it's lost to time or there are licensing issues or what but the only thing that i could find of this song is a 16 second video on youtube so i'm gonna play for you that song right now so tj you can't go get a beer because this is only 16 seconds long (laughs) (laughs) this is i never dreamed That's the whole song. An assistant to Eric Easton, who was the manager of the Rolling Stones, had seen the band on stage and invited them to audition for the Decca record label and do a studio recording of the song, which is what you just heard. Decca's reaction to the song was negative. Hmm. So David was never one to cling to the wreckage of a sinking ship. Moved forward with him and George Underwood forming the rhythm and blues band the King Bees, and they set out to try to get financing for them. Now, David Bowie was pretty damn ballsy. So in April of 1964, in an enterprising move, which was actually probably orchestrated by his dad, David decided to make an appeal to one of the richest men in Britain, which was a washing machine tycoon named (laughs) John Bloom, and ask him to invest in the King Bees. Now, his father probably helped him concoct the letter, but Bloom says that in it, he wrote that Brian Epstein's got the Beatles and you should have us. If you can sell my group the way that you sell washing machines, you'll be on to a winner. (laughs) So David's chutzpah impressed Bloom, who, as it happened, had actually met the Beatles, liked the music, and said to himself, this is just another young kid, but then again, who was Ringo? Mm-hmm. So the one of the first gigs that the King Bees actually played was John Bloom's wedding anniversary. Now, on the guest list was Roger Moore, Shirley Bassey, Beryl Lynn, Adam Faith, and all of London's impresarios. And so they invited David to play at this wedding. And so he shows up wearing blue jeans and a white t-shirt. <laughs> So when the bees took the stage, all of the guests were in the middle of 
eating and ignored them. And you have to understand most of these people were in their 60s and had no clue what David was playing. So upon John's request, before they could go into their third song, they were politely asked to pack up, (laughs) which they did. And they paid them. And that was it. So at this point, it should be said that David's father was kind of awesome. He wasn't like that average stage mom like gypsy rose that whole thing was like sing out kid john was kind compassionate warm and truly wanted his son to succeed and that's when david would ask for an upgrade on his saxophone that his dad saved up and went out on a shopping trip to upgrade him to a better saxophone nice like that's just cool like i there's maybe it was because i grew up in a home that really took the arts very seriously that i appreciate when a parent throws their support behind their kids art because there are some kids who all they want to do is art and they are pushed away from it and so there's just something that makes me so happy when i hear that someone has the backing of their parents So when David left the technical school the following year, he informed his parents of his intentions to become a pop star. His mother promptly arranged his employment as an electrician's mate. (laughs) There you go. Um, So the King Bees actually did have a debut single. And I'm actually going to play you that right now called Liza Jane. Now, initially, this song had absolutely no commercial success. (laughs) And I don't think it ever did. So since the last song that I played you was only 16 seconds, uh, this is going to be a dizzying two minutes and 16 seconds long. I know we're pushing you guys with your attention span, but here is Liza Jane. Liza Jane, what do we think? Very Beatles-ish. 
Yeah. yeah. And you can hear the little Richard uh, components there as well. Uh-huh. Vocally, especially. Mm-hmm. Well, he was pretty dissatisfied with the King Bees. And so he quit that band. And in less than a month, he joined the Manish Boys. Now, those guys had named themselves after a Muddy Water song. <laughs> the Manish Boys recorded one single, which was I Pity the Fool, Take My Tip, released in March of 1965. And that was produced by Shel Kalmai, who was also handling the Kinks and the Who at the time. So they were in pretty good hands. Busy guy. And it marked a progression from the guitar-oriented Rolling Stones-ish R&B of the David Jones and the King Bees 1964 soul single. I Pity the Fool was a cover of the Bobby Bland classic, Take My Tip, which had jazz elements. Because you can see where David Bowie would kind of infuse it with jazz elements because he was really big into jazz. That was the first composition that Bowie had ever recorded. The sides on which Jimmy Page played guitar as a session man were enjoyable, but not striking. And the Manish Boys split shortly afterward. So he played with Jimmy Page? Yeah, he's done a lot of stuff with a lot of people. <laughs> the thing is, and I don't think I even put it in here, one of his best friends, because his father was uh, like the bandmaster, mm-hmm. they hung out with him, was Peter Frampton. No kidding. Yeah. Who would uh, tour with Bowie many, many, many years later. Yes, yes. I don't even think I put, like, David Bowie's life is so packed with intrigue. There was crazy stuff that I left out of this. And then just, you know, flashing back a ways to our John Bonham episode, Jimmy Page was a fairly popular session musician. He played with pretty much every name you can name on the British music scene from the 60s. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's kind of So no 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 surprise they they worked together at some point. Yeah, not at all. Yeah, and and enjoyed each other's company. Like played well together. Uh but in their short lifetime they had managed to go on a package tour with uh Jerry and the Pacemakers, The Kinks, and Marianne Faithful, but when they got onto the BBC TV, it was because of a controversy over their hair. Their hair. Not their music. But they got booted from the BBC? They got in trouble. Oh, okay. Because, well, because at the time, there was that hair renaissance where, where, like, people started to, you know, they're, they're uptight 1950s persona where they had super short haircuts and mm. stuff. So, like, now is the time where the kids are growing their hair along and turning into hippies, you know? Oh, and, it's the 60s. Yeah, that's the 60s. Yeah. So, David Bowie has been in three bands at this point. And he's 17? 17, 16 or 17. Okay, wow. Yeah, not very old. Yes, kind of he's getting, well, yeah, well, when he joins the lower third by 1966, he's starting to work on a solo career. I Pity the Fool and Take My Tip have su- subsequently been reissued and are readily available on a Rhino compilation of early Bowie material, hmm. which I really should look into because I feel like that's something I'd probably enjoy. His material, yeah. The Manish Boys also recorded a cover of Barbara Lewis's Hello Stranger and Mickey and Sylvia's Love is Strange, which I love that song. That's in... Dirty Dancing. Dirty Dancing, thank you. Oh, yeah, That's okay, in Dirty Dancing. It, okay. That's where they're crawling on the floor with each other. Hot. Uh, at DECA, with Mike Smith producing, those songs have not been released. Another blues outfit who incorporated folk and soul, I used to dream of being their Mick Jagger. Bowie was to recall. Pity the Fool was more successful than Liza Jane, and Bowie soon moved on and joined the lower third, who were being strongly influenced by the Who. You've got a habit of leaving, feared no better, signaling the end of the contract with Khan. 
who was their manager at the time. Bowie would remain with the lower third. His new manager, Ralph Horton, later instrumental into his transitioning to a solo artist, soon witnessed Bowie's move into another group, The Buzz, yielding the singer's fifth unsuccessful (laughs) single release, Do Anything You Say. He's taking a break, I mean. Which, uh... I am going to play Do Anything You Say in just a moment, but um, with the buzz, Bowie also joined the Riot Squad and their recordings, which included a Bowie number and the Velvet Underground material went unreleased. So I'm going to play Do Anything You Say because some people consider this some of his darkest material that he's written. I disagree, but I'm going to let you be the deciding factor. David Bowie's do anything you say. What? That sounds more like the who almost. Well, that's yeah. I mean, there's a reason for yeah, that. A good reason for it, but you can hear well, it. Well, I would say that vocally it actually sounds like Bowie and the other ones really haven't. Yeah, and yes. And also you can also hear the Kinks influence as well. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I've been calling him David Bowie since the beginning of this episode, but the fact is that wasn't his name. You know, it was David Jones. So he was calling himself Davy J or David Jones or, you know, any any sort of branch out of that name. Mm, seems like there may have been someone else going by that moniker. Yeah, huh. British hack called the Monkees came along and 
so he had to change his name because they had a they had a member named davy jones yeah so and they were they were already pretty much established in britain at that time so david was searching for a name and someone mentioned the bowie knife well here we call it the buoy don't we it's a bowie it's a Bowie. Bowie knife. Some people, some people, say, some people do say Bowie though. Yeah. I've heard bo- both. I've heard it. I've yeah. heard both. Bowie and Bowie. But it's it's a knife that is named for the American frontiersman Jim Bowie, and that was his knife. And who was killed at the Alamo? Yep. Was he? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. His April 1967 solo single, "The Laughing Gnome," using sped up, high pitched vocals failed to chart but i'm not gonna play that song thank you because will would call shenanigans and burn our house down if i don't play this song so instead of playing the laughing gnome which i'm pretty sure all of our fans are gonna be sorely depressed i think we're going in the right direction personally at uh, instead i am going to play will's current favorite david bowie's song, song uncle arthur Strikes the bell for five o'clock Uncle Arthur closes shop Screws the tops on all the bottles Turns the lights out, locks it up Climbs across his bike and he's away Cycles past the gasworks, past the river Down the high street, back to mother It's another empty day Uncle Arthur likes his mummy Uncle Arthur still reads comics Uncle Arthur follows Batman Round and round the rumours fly How he ran away from mum On his 32nd birthday Told her that he'd found a chum Mother cried and raved and yelled and fussed Arthur left her no illusion Brought the girl round safe confusion Sally was the real thing, not just lust Uncle Arthur vanished quickly Uncle Arthur and his new bride Uncle Arthur follows Sally Round and round goes Arthur's head Hasn't eaten well for days Little Sally may be lovely But cooking leaves her in a maze Uncle Arthur packed his bags and fled Back to mother, all's forgiven Serving in the family shop He gets his pocket money, he's well fed Uncle Arthur, past the gasworks Uncle Arthur, past the river Uncle Arthur, down the high street Uncle Arthur, follows mother Yes, strange. It, it would it would classify as a jaunty tune. Yes, it would. And the best part is it, it's so catchy, it'll stay in your head. But it's one of those songs that's so eerily easy to change the lyrics. I mean, it's like Uncle Arthur counts his money. Uncle Arthur, he's a walrus. Uncle Arthur, <laughs> like you just have fun with it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, trust me, I know. I've been I living. Have. I have been living with this for about three weeks. Uncle wow. Arthur, Uncle Arthur, Frank's big penis. Uncle exactly. Arthur. <laughs> <laughs> it lies so the parody. Oh, okay. oh, top five Bowie songs. That's there. I'm telling you. Okay, so I told you guys that David Bowie went and studied to be a mime. <laughs> yes. 
which is weird, but he did it. And he studied under British mime artist Lindsay Kemp. And Lindsay Kemp, apparently, according to Wikipedia, which as we all know, is super accurate, especially when it comes to mimes. <laughs> I've always found that to be the case, yeah. <laughs> tells me that Lindsay Kemp is an incredibly famous mime. And, um... Basically, David Bowie's label wanted to be rid of him, and every time he had released a, rec- a recording, it flopped. So he didn't have a band, and he only worked on mime shows, <laughs> which I don't know if you guys know this, but he actually opened for T-Rex as a mime. That's the strangest thing I've heard tonight. Yep. <laughs> that says a lot. The the bit the bitch of that is that at the end he can't say and coming up next it's T Rex because <laughs> he's just a mime because because mom. But here's the thing, like it or loathe it, it's essential to Bowie's art. It's just as influential as his love of R and B or jazz or science fiction or Lou Reed or Buddhism. It lies behind everything that he did after 1968. Ziggy Stardust, Halloween Jack, mm-hmm. Thin White Duke. Even his Berlin trilogy are all basically mimed interpretations of rock musicians. Coming full circle, he would dress as Perot in his 1980 video for Ashes to Ashes, winding down his most creative period. It would also carry over to his acting career, too. Yeah. And um, I believe he would, uh, on occasion, have moms on stage as he played. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, true. Yeah. Performing mom, yes, moms performing on stage as he, as he played music. But you think about miming, and I'm going off script for just a minute, but you think about miming as you really have to know your whole body. You also have to know how to contort your face to to be able to convey certain thoughts and feelings. And David Bowie is one of the, if not the greatest showman we've talked about on this, this show, hands down. So it's like when I heard about football players taking ballet lessons, I kind of equate it to that. Yeah. It's just another tool for your toolbox that made him one of the greatest. It makes you a better performer. Yeah. It just made him perform better. So he had followed to this point a typical British would-be rock star. He left school early, played in a bunch of bands, got a manager, cut some singles, made a moderately psychedelic LP, and yet his mime years broke his fame. And it marked him with a different aesthetic than a typical rocker. And he, it's important because Bowie had to fit into the 1970s rock star slot. Okay, he created, he was integral in creating what we would consider glam rock. Hmm. He basically had to, on stage, push his bandmates to put on makeup huh. and put on these costumes because nobody else was doing that. You're talking about almost like performance art. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, so Bowie met the mime, Lindsay Kemp, in 1967, and by the fall was taking dance lessons from him. Kemp later claimed deliberately he created a legend, and he said he saved David Bowie from becoming a Buddhist monk. Sounds familiar. <laughs> Our this MCA is, episode. Yeah. So, Travis, if you're at home keeping score, this is two people that were stopped by being Buddhist monks. Can you imagine a world where Adam Yauch and David Bowie become Buddhist monks instead of musicians? <laughs> what would that be like? Yeah, so um, Bowie had visited a Buddhist monastery in Scotland and allegedly was considered taking vows. But Kemp asked Bowie to perform and write songs for a new production that he was mounting, uh, Perot and Turquoise. Bowie suggested using Turquoise 
as it was the Buddhist symbol of eternity, playing the feature, the sad, ever-trusting cuckold of his love. I want to say, is it Columbine, or am I doing the reverse of the Simon Whistler where it's <laughs> Columbine? Like Columbine, Columbine and her know. lover Harlequin, a variation on classic uh, comedian dell'arte types. The production became a traveling soap opera. Bowie was having simultaneous affairs with Kemp and the costume director, Natasha Korniloff. And once Kemp found out, he lived up to the role of the betrayed lover and slashed his wrist before a show. Oh my God. Wow. When the reopened wounds, when he reopened the wounds while performing that night, it stained his costume and the audience roared with the audacious realism. Because he was actually bleeding? Yeah. Oh my God. So... This is one of the first examples of David Bowie's ferocity when it comes to sexuality. Because now he's banging the costume person and the mime the, the instructor. Yes. Wow, that's a mad lib for you. Yeah. Bowie continued to work as a mime and a dancer throughout 1968 and 1969, dancing in a version of Pushkin's the Pistol Shot, and performing his own Tibetan-inspired production, Yitzan and the Eagle. And when Bowie's manager, Ken Pitt, seeking to revive his client's career, arranged for Bowie to record a promo film. Bowie included in the mix a mind piece with narration entitled The Mask. During the five-minute span, Bowie calmly and ominously depicts his future stardom and the subsequent near madness it caused him, and he acted out the future, then endured it. So on February 1969, T-Rex kicked off their tour of the UK at Free Trade Hall in Manchester, and their opening act was... No. David Bowie. David Bowie. Glass Tiger. It's not Glass Tiger. It's not Glass Tiger. We're so close. We've got like four more sentences. <laughs> On this night, it was David Bowie performing a one-man mime act. <laughs> According to Mental Floss, which is a website I love, Mark Bolin invited Bowie to open for T-Rex on the band's 1969 tour. At Bolin's insistence, Bowie performed his one-man routine depicting China's invasion of Tibet. Ah, yeah. It's a crowd-pleasing, uh, yeah. Nothing gets you revved up for a good rock show. I mean, yeah. beer, beer lines and guitar solos and show me your tits. Like, uh, Got a mime portrayal of China's invasion. A mime portrayal of China invading Tibet. Seriously, rock and roll. It's just so weird. It's just weird. So, Bowie was an experienced mime, and concert goers were apparently not a fan of the act. (laughs) Play the one you know. And Bowie was often met with boos and heckles. But Bowie would be fine, as we all know, because Space Oddity. Yes. was released that summer and the rest was history well it's his first musical hit not I mean, screwing yeah things exactly up. uncle arthur is a classic you shut up so for those who don't know space oddity was first released as a seven inch single on the 11th of july 1969 before appearing as the opening track of his second studio album david bowie this this was one of david bowie's signature songs and one of the four songs to be included in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's 500 songs that shaped rock and roll. Inspired by Stanley Kubrick's film 2001, A Space Odyssey, which was 1968, 
it's a play on that title and it's about launching the first man into space major tom who is a fictional astronaut and was released during a period of great interest in spaceflight the united states apollo 11 mission would launch five days later and that would become the first manned moon landing another five days after that the lyrics did you make air did you make air quotes around that i didn't so the lyrics have been seen to lampoon the British space program, which was still an unmanned project. So Bowie Bowie would revisit his Major Tom character in the 1980s lead single Ashes to Ashes from Scary Monsters and Super Creeps and the 1995 single Hello Space Boy from Outside. The third... They were, yes, the the British Space Force was much uh, less further along than, than the United States. They only shot monkeys into Mexico. <laughs> Why would the British shoot monkeys into Mexico? Because it's funny. Because it looks like the moon. All right. So, and in addition, Major Tom possibly influenced the music video for Black Star, which brings us full circle to the beginning, Boom. Um, which was, you know, David Bowie's final album of the same name. And if you watch that music video, like my brother was saying, I think he said it during the song. That music video is creepy. Very. Yeah, it's bizarre. But it's poignant and it's beautiful and it's full of symbolism and allegory and oh my god, just lots of lots of images alluding to what was to come, unfortunately. Yes. But if you if you watch the the full music video, you see the girl walk up to an astronaut suit and pull the skull out of the suit and they think that that might be an illusion to Major Tom because this is the first real moment where we see David Bowie become David Bowie. Space Oddity was the first single to chart in the UK. It reached the top five on its initial release and received the 1970s Ivor Novello Special Award for Originality. Uh, His self-titled second album was renamed after that track for its 1972 release by RCA Records and became known by this name. In 1975, upon its release as a part of a maxi single, the song became Bowie's first UK number one single. In 2013, the song gained more popularity because 44 years after Bowie released it, Canadian astronaut Chris Hadfield performed the song with slightly revised Mm -hmm. lyrics while aboard the International Space Station, therefore becoming the first music video shot in space. It's pretty amazing. Which is awesome. Have you seen that, T? I have not. This was not well put together like TJ's and Will of the Thrills was. So I'm just going to ask you straight off the top of your head, what is your favorite David Bowie song? Ooh. Oh, gosh. Ooh. Oh, that's gutting. I didn't want to send the message to you because I didn't want you guys to have time to think about it. Oh boy, that's uh, have a much more structured question next week. There's so many, there's so many different because he went, he he went through so he was so chameleon like and went through so many different phases and the music sounds so different at various stages. And then you have little, you have little, you have little treasures hidden like on Young Americans, um, Luther Vandross is singing background on Let's Dance, Stevie Ray Vaughan is playing guitar, and boy. China Girl's a great song, I think. Did Iggy pop write that one? Uh, But Stevie Ray played on it, didn't he? Wasn't he a guitar player? I I believe, because 
I know later on Iggy has a a very big part in David Bowie's life. So yeah, I, but they um the entire Let's Dance album, um, Stevie yeah. Ray Vaughan plays guitar on, and is and it's, it it sounds like Stevie Ray Vaughan. It's fantastic. Oh, yeah. I love Modern Love. Yeah, it's a great Good song. song. Great song. Changes is fantastic. Okay, Let's yeah, Dance yeah, it, itself is a great one. I'm putting the kibosh on it. You have to pick one. Ah! Oh, it's painful. Okay. I love I love the guitar at the opening of the song so much. The and I love it's such a hooky song. Uh the chorus is just so singable. And I love the parts where Bowie is talking. I'm I think I'm gonna say modern love if you're making me pick one off the top of my head. Good choice. Okay. Again, gun to my head here. Uh, and this is a very difficult decision because, like you said, that entire Let's Dance album is is amazing. Uh, Space Oddity is a great song. Space Oddity is a great song. Unreal. Uh, heroes. Uh, a lot of his quote plastic salt heroes. I, yeah. I didn't even think about heroes. But I, I, I'm gonna if you, if you're gonna put the gun to my head, I'm gonna go with the man who sold the world. Ooh. Oh, see, I nice. forgot about that. Which was masterfully covered by Nirvana, also uh, on the MTV yeah. Unplugged. It sure was. Yep. That, that's that's, that's me, a great. That's a great song. The two you named off there, "Heroes" and "The Man Who Sold the World." I could have picked either one of those. Those are yeah. both fantastic songs. I'm going with "The Man Who Sold the World." I, it, yeah, great one. Now, now, see, I'm a bit weird because one of my favorites is actually "Magic Dance." It's a fun song. It's a great song. It's a fun song. And it comes from the, what is it, the Bachelor and the Bobby Soxer? That oh, you remind me of the man. Yeah, you remind me of yeah. man. What man? Man with the power. Power of voodoo, voodoo. And yeah. then, or you, but then you could also, you could go a, a, a dig a little later and deeper into his catalog. I'm Afraid of Americans. Oh, yeah. The but video for that is, the video for that, that's another thing. He his His videos were always so fantastic. He saw them as an actual art form instead of just, I'm going to stand here and lip sync even early when nobody else did it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, like, like ashes to ashes, just as an example. Uh, but that, cause I think it's him and Trent Reznor, isn't it? Yes. Yes, yes it is. I'm afraid of America. That's a, that's a great killer song. Heavy as hell. Love so, it. So I've got magic dance, but of course, another one that will always get my blood pumping is under pressure. Sure. Which I technically Obviously. consider that a Queen song. Yeah, what do you, how do you classify that? Well, one? because you know it was a collaboration between the two of them, but it appeared on Hot Space. So technically, Queen song. And I believe the liner notes do let's say Queen and David, David Bowie. Bowie. That's why I take yeah. that one off the table. Yeah. So I love it, but I also love Changes. That's a gorgeous song. Golden however, Ears. However, my favorite song. Gun to my head would have to be Space Oddity. So our social stuff really quick. Uh, if you guys think we're doing a great job, probably not after this episode. <laughs> <laughs> but you can do that at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven. Our Twitter is rock and roll LT. Our Instagram is rock and roll heaven LT. Facebook rock and roll heaven pod. Still not saying our website. And you can email us rock and roll heaven LT at gmail.com. If I said that too fast, this information will be in our show notes. But please also check out the other awesome Pantheon podcast at www.pantheonpodcast.com. And that is where I'll leave you this week with Major Tom. And may God's love be with you. So please check us out next week, guys, for our continuing story of David Bowie. Mr. Hickey, say goodnight. Thank you. Good night.
and Mr. Deuce. Bye, everybody. Ice House. Here's the song. <laughs> Control to Major Tom. Ground control to Major Tom. Take your protein pills and put your helmet on. Ground control to Major Tom. Seven. Sing countdown engines on three, two, check ignition and may God's love be with you. Thank you.
Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. At Progressive, we know there's nothing like the feeling of riding a motorcycle with your crew on the open road. That symphony of engines roaring in perfect harmony. It's a feeling that would be impossible to recreate on the radio. Until now. Hit it, Jerry. Oh, my word. Really, really terrible. Is that a glockenspiel, Jerry? Quote with Progressive and see if you could save with America's number one motorcycle insurer. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Uh, no, no, Jerry. It's over. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.